Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Today, we are wrapping up this conversation we've been in for the past few weeks called Family Matters. I'll give you a really rapid-fire recap in case you can't remember where we've been. On week one, uh, we set up this tension that has really been the context for this entire conversation. We said that there is a gap that exists in all of our families between the ideal of what we hope our family to be like or, or maybe the ideal of what we think families should be like and the reality of what our families actually are. All of us have an ideal. All of us think that life in general and life in family especially is going to look a certain way. And then there's just the stuff of life that happens, the the reality that somehow feels lesser than that. And that creates this gap and this tension. And we talked on week one that our temptation is to eliminate that tension because we hate living in tension. Uh, That we tend to lower the ideal to match our reality so that we feel better about our reality. But Jesus actually pointed to a different way to navigate this gap. And what we said on week one is that Jesus actually raised the standard and at the same time deepened the grace. That Jesus actually kind of expanded the tension because he said, hey, you think that's ideal? I'm actually going to raise your vision of ideal and what the standard really should look like. And at the same time, Jesus refused to condemn anyone who failed to meet that standard. And so what we said is basically the tension is valuable. That the tension is good for us. That we should never resolve the tension between the ideal of what we want life and what we want family to look like and the reality of where our families are. Because in that tension, we actually discover what it looks like to follow Jesus. So that whole tension conversation was the context for every week since that week. And on week two, uh, we looked at the idea of mutual submission. And mutual is a really, really important clarifier because that idea of submission has been used in families and unfortunately often used in the church uh, to put down people or or to abuse people or oppress people, typically women, uh, when it's misused. But what we said on week two is that submission in a family is meant to be mutual. Everybody is supposed to submit to everybody, not out of reverence for one another, but out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence for what Jesus did for us. We should make our families a submission competition where it's constantly like, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first, and everybody is looking out for the needs of everybody else. Healthy families function in that way. Over Labor Day weekend, we had a unique weekend where we checked out a video from a talk that's about a decade old uh, where pastors Andy Stanley and his wife Sandra uh, shared some of the wisdom that they've gained uh, as parents and just kind of gave practical tips about what that looked like. And then last week, we talked about conflict in the family. And we said that when you win an argument in your family, you actually don't win at all. You might feel good for a second. Maybe you proved your point. Maybe everyone's convinced, but nobody's happy, right? Like the conflict just kind of seems to linger there and conflict in family especially can go on and on and on. So instead, we learned a different way to think about conflict and a different way to respond to conflict when it shows up in our families because James, Jesus' brother, actually introduced this idea in a letter that he wrote to first century Christians that behind every conflict, there's actually one source, There's all kinds of different contexts for conflict, all kinds of different reasons maybe that we have conflict, but there's really one source for why we fight with one another. And he said it's our desires within us. And so that's when we gave you that handy tool, right? If you want to pull out your pointer finger, you say, you know what part of the problem is? I'm not getting what I want. 
Last week we said if we own our part of the problem, it actually lowers the temperature and it takes some of the power away in the conflict. It lowers the leverage and when everybody gives up their leverage, suddenly we're not fighting so often. So that was what we talked about last week. Uh, Today, as we wrap this up, I want to try and stretch your thinking outside of the context of your current family environment. Because if you're like me, most of us, when we think about family, if I say, hey, what's your family like? Most of us in the West, in America, we tend to think immediate family. Right? If I said, like, tell me about your family, you would probably tell me uh, maybe about your mom and dad, depending on the season of life you're in, uh, maybe about your kids, maybe your brothers and your sisters, maybe your grandparents, right? maybe, depending, but that's about it. We kind of stop right there and we keep things pretty immediate and pretty local. Uh, but there's many parts of the world, even today, where if I went to that part of the world and said, hey, tell me about your family, they wouldn't only talk like kids and siblings and parents, but they would go back to the next generation. And the next generation would be about my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and maybe even my great-great-grandfather and this long legacy of what family really means. And then they would talk about maybe their kids and they would talk about the future and what it means for this family to have a legacy. And unfortunately, like many parts of our Western world, uh, our focus tends to be on like right now, on our immediate family and what's happening in that immediate family right now when we think about family. But here's something that you probably already know. You are a product of everybody who's gone before you in your family, right? Like you're here today because of your parents and you are who you are today because of your parents and your parents are who they are or were who they were because of their parents and their grandparents. And as you look down the legacy of our family, there's this lasting impact that gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. And the chances are, if you're a father or a mother or an aunt or an uncle, chances are you are probably in your life not only gonna influence your kids, your immediate family, but the influence that you have over the next generation is actually going to extend beyond a few generations at least after that as well. Or another way to say this, again, seems obvious, but it's that we are who we are because of the people who came along before us. In so many ways, we are who we are because of the people who went before us. And not only that, but we are in the process, whether we're intentional about it or not, whether we ever give any thought about it or not, right now we are all in the process of shaping the next generation of our families through the things that we say and the things that we do. No pressure. Right? But, but seriously, if you spend a few minutes thinking about it, like I would be willing to bet that probably everybody here today could think of a story in the past, maybe from your grandfather or, or maybe even your great-grandfather if you were able to know him or a grandmother if you were able to know her, uh, or at least you heard the story about something that they did that influenced your grandparents, that ultimately influenced your parents, that in some ways actually influenced and shaped you. And to some degree, we love doing this, right? You look back and you can see like who you are as a result of where you've come from, as a result of the people who went before you. It can be really powerful and remarkable when we do that. Here's the part that we very rarely do. Okay, we very rarely stop and connect the dots and realize that you are somebody's previous generation. Right? Maybe not yet, but you will be someday, somebody's previous generation, that someday you're gonna be like a snapshot in somebody's mind. When they look back and they think about your life, they'll be like, oh yeah, I had a great aunt. Right? Like, I remember she played with me when I was little, uh, and it's you, right? <laughs> or like, yeah, I remember my grandpa, right? He, w- he was awesome, he showed up. Or I had this great uncle, he was that smelly guy we used to hang out around, or whatever. Like, you, at some point, will be a snapshot in the memory of future generations of your family. And it is you and me, and it's our decisions that we make now, and the things that we say, and the things that we do now, 
that ultimately determine what that impact looks like for future generations. I was thinking about it for my family, and I don't have any like big dramatic stories. I probably would if I thought about it a little longer. Uh, but I was thinking about like little things that have shown up in my family that have made a big difference in, in how we tend to approach life. Uh, my great grandfather, uh, especially on my mom's side, like both great grandfathers, as you keep going back and splintering off, uh, they were born or they lived through the Great Depression era. And uh, because of that, they had to learn how to navigate the challenges of that day. And so as a result, they became incredibly frugal. They were very hardworking, right? They knew that like, you had to figure out how to get by and how to live with only what you could have. And, and so that was instilled uh, in their families as my grandma and my grandpa separately grew up. They also picked up this value, right, of being frugal and of not taking more than you need and just making do with what you have and making things last. And so uh, my mom grew up around that. And guess what? She picked it up too. Uh, she's a very hardworking, frugal person, very organized, very disciplined, and I think she did her best to try and pass that on uh, to me and to my brother. I don't know how well I'm doing, but uh, there's these little things, even like small reminders in the way that my family approaches things like holidays that remind us of previous generations. Uh, every Christmas in our stocking that hangs on the chimney with care, right? every Christmas we get an orange uh, in our stocking on my mom's side, or my my side of the family. Uh, and the reason that that's there is this callback to that Great Depression era. Uh, it was a treat in those days to be able to afford fresh produce. And, and so an orange was really remarkable. And so for generations now, right, on to the third generation, I, I'm doing it for my daughter, there's an orange that shows up as this reminder to be grateful for what we have and be responsible for the things that we're given. And it's just this tiny little thread, right? Consequently, this man, some of whom I didn't even ever get to actually meet, have influenced my grandparents, who influenced my parents, who are influencing me. And as I now try and influence my generation, and as my brother and I try and influence our kids in the years to come, it's this tiny little part of who previous generations were and what they did that's now shaping future generations. And here's my point. It's that you are who you are in so many ways because of the family that came before you, and the family that will come after you, whether it's your kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or people that you adopt or people that you treat like family, they will be in large part who they are based on your influence, based on what you do and what you say. You have this future version of your family and you are currently in the process of making your mark on that future family. And you could say it this way. This is really the bottom line for today. So if you want to check out early, uh, you have a half hour to zone out. But this is the point of what we're going at today. It's that actions don't just speak louder than words. We've all heard that before. We've all experienced that before. But actions don't just speak louder than words. Sometimes they even echo into the next generation. Sometimes the things that we do or the things that we say for better and for worse echo into the next generation. And uh, what we're going to do with our time together, again, as we close this conversation about family, is I want to look at one of the best illustrations of this dynamic uh, that I've seen play out, and it's recorded in Scripture. It's recorded in the story of a family, and uh, really shows you uh, just how the actions that previous generations make can impact future generations. And I told you in week one uh, that there really are not a lot of great examples in Scripture of healthy families. Uh, whenever people talk about biblical families and how we should raise biblical families, I always am like, which one? Because they're almost all a mess, okay? If you actually go through and you read the Bible and you look at the family dynamics at play, you probably don't want a biblical family because there are some really funky ones in there, okay? So like maybe Christian family, uh, maybe like New Testament values, sure, we should live that out and we should figure that out. Uh, but in the midst of this 
putting the fun in dysfunctional context, there is a story in the midst of a family that's incredibly remarkable. And, and the problem with this story, uh, you may have even heard it before, it's actually kind of two stories that are connected by a thread that we often overlook. And the challenge of seeing this thread connecting the stories is these stories happen over the course of at least 60 years. It's a generational story. And uh, it covers about two-thirds, maybe at least a little more than half of the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. So there's all the creation stuff. And then it moves on from there. And God starts creating a group of people through whom he wants to redeem and restore the world. And uh, you may have even heard these stories before, again, like independent of one another, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. Both of these stories are very Sunday school kind of stories. Uh, the second story, it's somewhat miraculous, but really the, the power of the second half of the story, at least for our purposes today, doesn't fully shine and doesn't fully make sense unless you connect it to the first story, which we often overlook. But it illustrates the power of generational influence, of generational parenting, if you will. And it illustrates the power for us in thinking in terms of what kind of legacy am I leaving for future generations. And so we're going to start out, and I'll tell you the part that you may know, okay, if you were around church. And then I'm going to go back and tell you the part that maybe you've never connected the dots with and never recognized uh, actually was a trend. And if you're not a church person and you're here today, we're really excited that you're here. Uh, I'm going to cover a lot of ground really quickly, okay? And it may just kind of feel like the highlight reel of these stories. That's totally okay. Um, but if you want to get like the meat and the detail of these stories, you can download the Version Bible app or you can find a Bible somewhere. Just come talk to me and we'll figure out a way to get you a Bible. And, and if you actually like open up the book of Genesis and you, you skip the creation part that you don't believe anyway, right? And, and then you read through uh, this story, I'm telling you, it, it's like exciting TV drama kind of stuff if you actually read through it. And it's a really powerful story. But this story uh, begins in the story of one of the most famous families in all of the world. A family that just about everybody in every single part of the world knows something about. Because the story starts within the story of Abraham. And Father Abraham had a couple of sons. And um, one of his sons was a guy named Isaac. And so Isaac, you've got Abraham, eventually you've got Isaac. Isaac had two sons as well, known as Jacob and Esau, at least if you grew up in church, right? But it was actually Esau and Jacob because they were twins. They were born basically at the same time, except uh, the text tells us that Esau came out first. So he was born first and he was considered the firstborn, which in that context and in that culture was incredibly significant because as the oldest, he had opportunities as an older son because in that culture, an older son got double the share of inheritance uh, when the father eventually passed away compared with all of their brothers and sisters. And it also meant that the firstborn or the oldest son in that culture, in that context, would become the judge of the entire family. You were essentially in authority. So when your father passed away in that culture, uh, the firstborn would become the rule maker, would become the leader uh, and the power broker for the entire clan or the entire family. So there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Esau and Jacob, and then Jacob goes on to have 12 sons, and his most famous son was a guy named Joseph, and that's who we're going to talk about first. This isn't like Mary and Joseph, Joseph. Uh, this is Joseph with the fancy coat, okay? So... Uh, it's a story, again, that many of us maybe grew up hearing, and I'll tell it to you like rapid fire really quickly. But when Joseph was around the age of 17 years old, um, he discovered pretty quickly that all of his brothers hated him. And he discovered this because of the whole biblical family problem. Okay, the reason that all of uh, J Joseph's brothers hated him was because Joseph was the son of his father's favorite wife. Okay, 
Like, you can see some of the brokenness and the tension right in there. Like, honey, you're my favorite wife. Thanks. And you're my second favorite wife. And I won't even talk to your kids, which are also my kids, because I don't like you. Like, little, little broken, little weird. Okay. But Joseph is the son of Jacob. And Joseph uh, came from Jacob's favorite wife, and all the other kids we'll get to in a little bit, but Joseph was the favorite, okay? Joseph was doted on, like I said, he got this really cool coat. Uh, But one day, Jacob says to Joseph, hey, Joseph, I want you to check in on your brothers, because I know that they're not doing what they're supposed to do. I I want you to check in on them and and see what they're doing. And so generally speaking, what would happen is Joseph would go, and he would check in, and he would end up going back to Jacob and be like, Dad, you're not going to believe what they're doing now. You're not going to believe where my brothers went off to now. And, and so on this particular occasion, uh, these 10 other brothers are all out doing their thing, and Joseph goes to where they're supposed to be, and they're not there. He's like, here we go again, right? So, so Joseph goes out, and he goes to find out where they are and ends up tracking them down, and they see him coming in the distance, and the brothers are like, oh, great. Right? Here comes the dreamer. Here comes the rat. Here comes the narc. Like He's about to go tell Dad again what we're up to. He's just going to go back to Dad and say, Dad, they're doing it again, whatever it was, we don't exactly know that, but whatever it was, they would get into trouble again. And so in this particular moment, these brothers decided they had had enough of this dynamic. And so the brothers decided, hey, let's, let's just kill him. Let's be done with this kid. Let's be done with him once and for all. So Joseph gets there and the brothers gang up on him and they beat him up and they take his fancy coat and they end up throwing him down in this empty well, down in this cistern, and they're discussing, okay, what do we do with him now, right? How do we finish this? How do we get rid of this? But then they have this moment where they're overwhelmed by mercy and compassion, and they decide, you know what, let's not kill him. Let's just tell our parents that somebody killed him, and let's sell him. Because then we get a little bit of profit, right? We get a little bit of change on the side. They'll think he's dead, and we just get to be ahead either way. And so sure enough, that's what they do. They sell Joseph, their brother, to some slave traders. And they break their father's heart, and they, they go back, and they say, what can we say, right? We found his robe. It's right here. And they'd smeared animal blood on it. They're like, there's animal blood, and there's maybe some of Joseph's blood on here, and we don't know exactly what happened. I'm sure he did a good job, but your favorite son's been killed, right? He's gone. And they sell their brother into slavery. And so Joseph, unknowing to him in the moment, is on his way to Egypt, and the thing is, when we read Bible stories, right, sometimes we romanticize it, and sometimes because it's like captured in two sentences, we're like, oh, okay, sold into slavery, and move on to the next thing. But for Joseph's like real-life first-century experience, or long before the first-century experience, there was this 17-year-old boy who was probably shackled behind camels, right, being dragged through the desert, and he's grown up around slaves. So he knows what the life of a slave is going to look like, and he knows life as he's known it, as the favorite doted-on son is now over, but he has no idea if he'll ever even make it to Egypt. And if he does make it to Egypt, he has no idea who will become his new master and what kind of work he'll spend the rest of his life doing. And this is kind of a dark thought, but to help you understand like, that he really had no other options, even if he had wanted to get out, right, in his life and get out of the situation. In the ancient world, uh, that was very rarely possible, that, that it was easy for people in the ancient world to really hurt themselves and maybe get sick and then maybe die, but it certainly wasn't a quick solution to anything. And so Joseph in this moment is stuck with this life ahead of him, this life ahead of him that he has no idea what it's going to look like. But somehow he makes it safely to Egypt and he is sold to a man named Potiphar who was actually one of the captains in the guard of the Pharaoh. So it's a really influential, powerful family. And uh, when he goes into Potiphar's house, we also discover something interesting about Joseph because Joseph decided to live his life as if God was with him, even when it seemed like God had abandoned him. 
He decided to live his life as if God really was as good as God says that he is, even when life didn't seem to support that or back it up. And so at every turn, we see Joseph doing the right thing even when wrong things happen to him. We see Joseph trying his best, even though things never really seem to take a turn for him. He continues to live as if he's somebody that God is with, even though life seems to be pointing the exact opposite direction. And so Joseph is doing his best, and he's working hard for Potiphar as his slave. And Potiphar takes notice, and he realizes, man, this, this guy's great. He's working hard for me. But he also attracted attention from Potiphar's wife, and she noticed him. She's like, this guy's He's got something going on, right? And so Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph, and she's like, I want you to be my guy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I want you to be my boy. I want you to, to, you know. And Joseph's like, no, I can't do that, right? I can't. I would dishonor my master, your husband, right? He, like, sneaks that in. Like, remember, you're married. Like, we can't, we can't do that. It would dishonor my master, your husband, and, and it would also dishonor my God, right? To which, if you're, like, thinking of Joseph's story so far, you're like, time out, Joseph. The God like, who allowed your brothers to sell you instead of killing you? That's the God that you're so, like, concerned about honoring? The God who seemingly has dishonored you by watching this whole scene happen and doing nothing to protect you so far? But Joseph decides to do the right thing anyway. And so Potiphar's wife ends up framing him. She makes this claim uh, that this Hebrew boy that they brought into their family had tried to, to rape her or abuse her. And the leaders in the community, they had no choice but to listen to her complaints. And so Joseph is arrested, and the slave is thrown in the dungeon, which it's always bad to be in the dungeon. It's always bad to be a slave. It's really bad to be a slave in the dungeon, okay, because you're thrown in there, and you're not waiting for a court date, okay? Nobody's thinking about, like, oh, when do we bring justice to this person that we've failed to treat like a person from the start? Like, you're just in your cell, and you're just waiting forever, and that's where Joseph found himself, and yet he continued to try and live like a man that God was with, even though it seemed like God had abandoned him. He continued to do the right thing, even though things never turned in his favor. And then we run into this like, strange verse in Genesis that summarizes this stage of Joseph's life. And here's what it says. It says, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And think about that. Like, if God is with you, you typically don't have a personal relationship with the prison warden, right? That, that doesn't, at least not in our terms. That's not what we think. Like, if God is with you, you don't really care what the prison warden thinks because you don't know the prison warden unless he works for you. Like, you don't know the prison warden as your prison warden. That's what we tend to think. But the tension of this is, like, God is with Joseph, but all that ultimately amounts to is, like, being in prison and getting favor with the prison warden, which means maybe I get an extra loaf of bread sometimes, right? Like sometimes I get a little bit of preferential treatment. This doesn't seem like evidence that God is with me, and it doesn't seem like evidence that I'm being favored by God and that God is kind. But, God, but Joseph, rather, continues to do the right thing, even though it seemed like God had abandoned him. And time goes on, and eventually uh, there's a couple of guys in Pharaoh's court or Pharaoh's posse who get in trouble with Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets mad at them, so he throws them into prison as well, and they end up meeting Joseph. And Joseph had this kind of remarkable ability to be able to interpret or understand what dreams meant. And so these guys from Pharaoh's court get thrown into prison with Joseph, and one of the guys who's the cupbearer to Pharaoh has a weird dream. And they're talking about it in their cells or at prison. And, and uh, Joseph says to the cupbearer to Pharaoh, he's like, hey, I can interpret your dream. I can tell you what that means. So he's like, all right, I'm all yours. Like, help me understand. And, and Joseph says, look, this dream that you've had means that you're going to be restored to Pharaoh. 
That's what your dream that you had means. And, and the guy's like, well, that's amazing. And, and so Joseph's like, okay, look, when this happens, okay, if my interpretation is right, when you're restored to Pharaoh, will you please do something for me too? Because nobody remembers that I'm here. Right? I've been here for, for years at this point, and I'm thinking I'm going to die in this dungeon. So listen, if my interpretation is right, will you please remember me and mention me to Pharaoh when you get out of here? When you're restored to Pharaoh, if what I say and what I've predicted comes true, will you tell somebody? And the cupbearer's like, yeah, of course. Right? Why, why wouldn't I? Like, if you're right and I'm restored and I'm out of this dungeon, of course I'm going to tell somebody. And so sure enough, what Joseph predicted through his interpretation of his dream came true. And the cupbearer was restored back to Pharaoh's service. And Genesis tells us that he forgot all about Joseph. Okay, he, he gets what he wants. He goes back to where he was. And so for two more years, every day, Joseph keeps waking up and doing the same thing over and over and over again, living in this cell. And his only consolation is like, the warden likes me. <laughs> the warden likes me. So then two years later, like they go by and Pharaoh himself has a dream. And it's a dream that's disturbing him. It's bothering him and he wants to understand it. Nobody in Pharaoh's court can interpret what this dream means. And Pharaoh knows it's an incredibly important dream that needs to be understood. And something like goes off in the cupbearer's memory as he's standing there in the court, right? He's like, dreams, interpreting dreams. Whoa. He's like, hey, Pharaoh, remember that thing a couple years back? Don't think about it too long. Okay, but remember I went to prison. It was all big misunderstanding. But while I was there, I met this Hebrew boy named Joseph. I met this guy, and he had a, I had this dream, and the boy predicted what was going to happen, and he understood it. And so, like, maybe he can interpret your dream, oh, great one. And so next thing you know, they go down to the dungeon, and they're checking the roster. There's like, is there a Hebrew boy named Joseph here? And Joseph raises his hand. Again, no idea what's going to happen yet, right? This might be the day that it's just all over. But they bring him out, and they shower him, and they shave him, and they cut his hair and probably pierce his ear and give him tattoos and make him look as Egyptian as possible, and by the time it's all over, he actually looks like he belongs in the culture. Okay, and they bring him out and they bring him into the palace. And Joseph finds himself standing in front of the most powerful man in the world at this point, the Pharaoh, the leader of the largest empire in the world. And, and Pharaoh says from his giant throne, young man, I hear that the gods are with you and that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says the dumbest thing imaginable to the most powerful person he would ever encounter. He goes, no, I can't, but my God may be able to give the Pharaoh an interpretation of a dream. And, and everybody in the courtroom would be like, wow, you can't talk to Pharaoh like that. Like, Pharaoh thinks he is one of the gods, right? He equates himself to being like a god, and Joseph's words communicate to the Pharaoh, no, no, there's one great god who's greater than you, Pharaoh, and to whom you're accountable. And as you can imagine, like, the palace guards probably reach for their swords, but Pharaoh stops him. He's like, I need to know about this dream. And so he tells Joseph the dream, and Joseph says, okay, I got it. Here's what your dream means. For the next seven years in Egypt, there's going to be such an incredible harvest. You're not going to know what to do with everything that you're able to reap from your fields. You're not going to know what to do with all the grain that you produce. And then the following seven years, there's going to be a famine, some of the worst conditions that you've ever lived through. And it's going to destroy and wreck the economy of this great nation and the surrounding area as well. So you're going to have seven years of plenty, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. And then Joseph does the unthinkable. He doesn't just stop with interpreting the dream. He starts to give Pharaoh advice about what he should do. And he's like, look, I know I'm not from here and you can still smell the jail on my breath. Like, I know I'm just out of prison, but like, here's what you should do. You should find a really good administrator. 
somebody who can really take care of stuff, and you should put him in charge of a project where you build really big grain silos in every single city as soon as possible. And you need to tax the people 20% of their grain over the next seven years. Just take it, like do the government thing, and just take it and put it in grain silos and save it for the next seven years. And then what's going to happen is your people are going to run out of grain because this famine's coming. And then, Pharaoh, you're going to be able to sell the grain back to the people, and it's going to make you incredibly, incredibly wealthy. And eventually, even people from the surrounding areas are going to find out that you're the only guy with grain in town, and so you're going to be so wealthy by the time it's over. It's going to be incredible. You've got to find somebody really sharp to do this job. They have to wake up every single day thinking about this project because you've got seven years, and time's ticking. And the scribes are listening, and they're like, that's a good idea, actually. Like, this kid knows some things about stuff. And Pharaoh's like, what do you guys think? And they're like, yeah, that, I think we should do that. And, jo- and then Pharaoh turns to Joseph, and he goes, okay, I'm putting you in charge. And they're like, what? We didn't say that, right? Like, he was in jail 15 minutes ago. We don't know this kid. Like, what are you doing? But no, Pharaoh turns, and he goes, hey, can you find me a greater, wiser man in my whole kingdom? And on that day, Joseph goes from, like, street rat to prime minister of Egypt, second in command to the Pharaoh. And he goes to work, and he does his job, and sure enough, there's so much grain, they don't know what to do with all of it, and they can barely save it. And he goes through the countryside, and he starts building silos and having people fill those silos with all the grain. And then at the beginning of the eighth year, it all stops. Right? Things turn, and their famine shows up on the land. Nobody can grow anything, and people begin to starve. And Joseph, who is in charge of saving all the grain, starts distributing grain to the people of Egypt. And finally, word gets outside of Egypt, where other people are starving, right? And they find out that there is food available in Egypt. And so people from all over the region start to pour into Egypt to buy grain from the Egyptians. And two years into the famine, the family of Joseph shows up. Remember, we're talking about family today? The family of Joseph shows up, and they've run out of food, and they have no choice but to go to Egypt and to buy food. And this is why you should read your Bible. Right? This is fascinating. It's, this showdown's right there. And here's what happens. It says Israel, which is Jacob's new name. That's a, that happens along the way. But Jacob's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. And Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. Think about that moment. Right? At this time, he, he's probably like 39 years old. It's been 22 years since he last saw his brothers. And there they are. Not only there they are, but there they are bowing down to him. And, and he remembers. Right? He remembers what their voices sounded like when he was down at the bottom of that well and they're debating what they're going to do to him. He, he remembers the fear of a 17-year-old with 10 brothers ganging up on him and not knowing what his future would be. He remembers the way they smiled and laughed when they sold him. And he remembers the clunk of the silver that was dropped into their hands as they were paid for his life. He remembers the total lack of concerns where for all, on the day that for all practical purposes he became a dead man. And he remembers all those years sitting in the dungeon, not knowing, waiting, wondering. Right? He didn't have an Old Testament in there with him. He was just living day by day, wondering what was going to happen next. And he had no idea that we would be talking about him four or 5,000 years later. And there they are, bowed in front of their brother. And their fate and their destiny is in his hands. And it's in this moment that Joseph remembers something else. And he remembers a scene from his childhood. And this is that thread that we often don't tie together, okay? So we're going to hit another story real quick, and we'll wrap things up. 
And to do that, we've got to rewind, and we've got to go back many, many, many years in the life of Joseph. Remember, in this family, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, and then Isaac has these two sons, Esau and Jacob. And when Esau and Jacob were teenagers, like maybe middle school age, maybe high school, they were twin brothers, but they were dramatically different. Okay, uh, Jacob was kind of like mama's boy, but he was this extraordinary cook and kind of a sensitive type maybe. Esau was a man's man. He was the woodsman. He was all hairy and liked to go out and hunt and fish. And one day tell, uh, Genesis tells us that when Esau was a teenager and Jacob was a teenager, uh, Esau had been out hunting for several days and, and he had nothing to show for it. So he's starving to death. He's worn out. And he comes home and he smells something cooking that smells so good. He walks in the kitchen and there's Jacob stirring a pot of stew. And Esau walks in and he's like, oh, Jacob, Jacob, like, give me some of that stew, man. I, I have to have some of that or I'm going to die. And this is a rare moment for a younger brother, as a younger brother, I can tell you. It's a rare moment when he realizes he has leverage over his older sibling. He realizes there's, there's opportunity here and older brothers never need anything from younger brothers. But in this moment, suddenly the older needs something from the younger. And Jacob, who's the smarter younger brother, does what any younger brother would do in this situation. And he's like, okay, what can I get out of this? And I would imagine he tries to just swing for the fences knowing he's going to have to dial it back in from there. But he just like sets the bar as high as possible and decides let's back up. So as an afterthought, he's stirring the stew. He's like, all right, let's make a trade. I'll give you a bowl of stew for your birthright. Right? For, for your inheritance. The birthright, like I said, he was going to inherit over half of everything from his very wealthy father and that he would possibly have two or three or maybe even four times as much as his other brother. And Esau, right, teenager, frontal lobe not fully developed yet, very, very hungry, everything is now, now, now. He's like, fine, deal, let's do it. And he trades his birthright over for a bowl of stew. And the text tells us that on that day, Esau despised his birthright and he ate the stew, and the stew was gone. But the most valuable thing that he had as an older brother had been given away. And a little time goes by. We don't know exactly how much, but eventually their father, uh, he's, he's aging, he's very old, starting to lose his eyesight, and it's time for the brothers to come before their father for a blessing. And this blessing wasn't just like nice words that were spoken. It was actually in that culture a legally binding moment where the father would pass on his inheritance to his sons. And so whatever the father said was legally binding in these days. And a part of that is the father would lay his hands on the oldest son and would pass on that birthright to him. They would be blessed. And and so basically it was this way of saying, you're going to take my place in leading this family or leading this clan. And, And so Jacob, with a little help from his mom, ends up sneaking into dad's room before Esau could get there. And they covered his arms with goat's hair so that he felt like man's man, hairy Esau. Because remember, Isaac's eyesight was bad. And so he sneaks in. He says, hey, I'm Esau, and I've come for the blessing. And his father, Isaac, is kind of confused. He's like, you don't sound like Esau. He's like, touch my arms, okay? Jacob like this? Nope, that's not Jacob. And so the father ends up laying his hands on Jacob, pretending to be Esau, and he gives him the blessing, and he gives him the authority and all of the power of the firstborn. It's this legally binding moment. Jacob leaves, and soon after that, actual Esau shows up for the blessing, and he walks in, and and he's like, hey, dad, I'm here, and and the father's confused, and he's like, listen, I'm sorry. I I already gave it away. It's already happened, and I can only give it once, and I gave it to the one who is here before you. Needless to say, Esau is angry with his brother, right? He, he's, he's stolen everything that was rightfully his, and there's nothing he can do about it. And Genesis actually tells us this, that Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing 
that his father had given him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I'll kill my brother Jacob. He's like, dad's aging. We're gonna have to deal with all that. And then as soon as that's done, I'm gonna kill my brother. And so Joseph's father, Jacob, hears about this and he runs for his life. And he stayed away for 20 years, hiding out with his uncle. And he ended up marrying Leah and Rachel, which is where the biblical family thing happens again. He ends up having seven sons by those two and then four other sons because there were like pregnancy wars happening in the family and it's this big dramatic thing. It's like a TV, TLC show. Uh, but anyway, eventually God shows up to Jacob while he's in hiding and the Lord, the text says, the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. And Jacob in this moment is thinking, you better be with me. Okay, because I know what Esau's like and I know how he feels about me. He's going to kill me and he might kill my sons just so they don't grow up to rule over his family and he's going to get his revenge. But he trusts God. So Jacob packs up his family and all of his herds and the slaves and wives and all the kids. And they make this long journey back and Esau hears that they're coming and here's how the story continues. It says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Okay, these aren't like family members. This is like a small army. And he sees them. And so he divide, Jacob divides the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the female servants and their children in the front, and Leah and her children next. And Rachel, and look who's here, Joseph, in the rear. Isn't it interesting? He's the only son who's actually named. Joseph's there on the scene. And like, here's what happens next. It says that Jacob himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So here's the scene, right? You've got these 400 men strong army standing on top of the hilltop, and Jacob's got his poorly guarded caravan with all these kids and women and slaves, and he's walking up, and he steps out in front of his wives and his children. He starts to make his way across no man's land towards his angry brother, And every few steps, he falls down and he bows to him. And then he gets up again and he falls and he bows and he does it over again. And the children and the wives and the servants and everybody's watching Jacob do this and they're wondering what's going to happen, right? Because this is their future. This is their destiny. And and really, it's all in the hands of a man with an army on a hill that they have never met before and that their master hasn't seen for over 20 years. And he gets close to Esau. And the writer of Genesis says this. It says, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and the children. He said, who are these with you? He asked. And Jacob answered, these are the children that God has graciously given to your servant. And then the female servants and their children approached and they bowed down next. And it says, next Leah and her children came and bowed down. And last of all, here he is again, Joseph and Rachel they too bowed down. This was a story Joseph probably heard told his entire life, right? Remember the day Uncle Esau forgave your dad. Remember the day that Uncle Esau spared your father's life and and he spared your life, Joseph, and your mother's life. And and you know this story, right, Joseph? Your father didn't deserve it, right? You, You know this story. He deserved whatever Uncle Esau wanted to do. But on that day, There was this reconciliation that nobody expected and that nobody deserved. And Joseph, that's why you're alive today. And 30-something years later, there's Joseph, right hand of Pharaoh, with his own brothers, laying before him, bowing faces to the ground, and he has the power of life and death in his hands. 
and he chooses to do for them what he saw his uncle do for him 30 years ago. He chooses in a moment of crisis, in a moment where the emotional stakes are so high and the emotions had to be so incredibly complicated, he chooses to do what he saw done for him, and he ends up extending mercy to his brothers who deserved no mercy. And the story goes on, and you should read it for yourself because we're running out of time here, but eventually he lets them know, like, look, I walk like an Egyptian and I talk like an Egyptian, but I'm Joseph, okay? Like, I'm, I'm your brother, I'm a Hebrew baby. And uh, he looks up, and, oh, man, they see through it, and it says that they started to weep together and that they embraced again. I mean, it almost mirrors the story of Esau and Jacob's reconciliation in some ways. And they're together, and Joseph drops his famous line where he says, hey, you, brothers, may have intended all this for evil, but God has intended this for good. And he restores the relationship, and he provides for his family. And even after his father dies, when you think that he might extract revenge, Joseph says, no, this is for your good. This is what God would have me do. So that's a lot of story, right? But here's the moral of this story for us today. The moral of the story is that what your children and what your grandchildren and what your nieces and nephews see you do will lay the groundwork for what they do, especially in times of crisis, especially when things are difficult. What they watch you do will shape what they do, and they will forget almost everything we say. Okay, they will forget almost everything we say, but they will not forget who we are, and they will not forget what we are. And they'll never forget what we did if we do the right thing when doing the right thing is difficult. When staying's difficult, right? When running away would have been the easier thing to do. When not paying our debt would have been the easier thing to do. Or mishandling our money would have been the easier thing to do. They won't remember what we say, but they will remember what we did in those moments. So just like to bring it home for a second. Like dads, think about that. Like grandfathers, think about that. What if what you do is the thing that your sons and your grandsons take their cues from? Like, what if, what if the thing that you do is the thing they look at as their pattern for how they navigate their lives? What if you become the model for how they raise their grandchildren? What if, like, dads, what if you're the model for how they choose to treat your future daughter-in-law? What if you're the model for how they deal with temptation or the model for how they respond to crisis in life? And what if they take their cues from you? Because the odds are that they will. Or moms, like what if your daughters take their cues from you about how they treat and talk to and respond to your future sons-in-law? What if they take their cue from you about how they view themselves? What if they take their cue from you about how they raise your grandchildren? What if the way you view money or your worldview or your spirituality or you respond to God, what if they take their cue from you? And what if what you're doing right now is determining what the next generation does? What if your actions today shape your legacy tomorrow? The chances are we are. And most of us, we may not live long enough to see the impact of the results of the lives that we live, but rest assured, decisions you're making right now will leave an imprint on the lives of the people who follow you, the people who follow you generation after generation. So here's the bottom line, wrapping up this whole conversation. So actions don't merely speak louder than words. Sometimes they echo into the next generation. And of course, your actions do speak louder than words, and that's important, but it's not just about here and now, and it's not just about the next 10 or 15 years, right? Like, you're going to do some things, and you're going to have some actions and some choices you make that will echo into future generations of your family. And so my question, right, for me as a father who, by God's grace, someday might be a grandfather. Ooh, sorry. 
<laughs> and then maybe, if I'm lucky, like, we'll get to see great-grandkids. And maybe we'll have like great-great-grandkids who maybe still remember any name, probably not. But the question is, right, what's going to echo from my life into those future generations? What's my daughter going to talk about? Yeah, I got that from dad. It'll be something. But it's up to me whether that's for better or for worse. And, and what echoes going to come from your life into the next generation? It means, if this is true, right, in our families right now, it means your family matters more than you can understand because you have more opportunity than you could possibly imagine in the decisions that you make now, in the way that you respond to temptations now, in the way that you manage your money now, in the way that you navigate a difficult world right now. It's going to have this impact that will reverberate into your future family. And, and so just wrapping up, right, if this is all true, and I believe it is, what would you do differently? What are you currently doing that you would stop if you knew it was going to pass on, not only in your life, but down the line of your family? Like, what do you need to change if this is true? And if this is true, why wouldn't you change? And why wouldn't you change as quickly as possible? Let me pray for you. God, again, man, this topic... It's so every day, right? We face family and family dynamics for better and worse every single day. But when we take this bigger view, this longer view, we see that it is so extraordinarily powerful too. And so God, I pray for all of us here today that we would learn to walk wisely, that we would learn to walk with you, that just like we heard from the life of Joseph, that we would have big faith that trusts you even when life doesn't look like it's going according to plan. And God, I pray that we could become people who make an impact, not only in our generation, but for the sake of the generations yet to come. That throughout these five weeks or so together that we've talked about family, maybe we pick one, right? Maybe we pick one, we're like, you know, conflict. I'm gonna figure that one out so that it stops with me. So that this trajectory of just blowing up and fighting and having conflict in my family tree, that it stops here and we start a new branch. God, give people the courage today to do that. If there's something they recognize in their family that they wanna change. God, give them the courage to do it if there's something they recognize in themselves that they want to change, that they want to work towards for the sake, not only again of themselves, but for the sake of future generations. And God, for all of us, give us the wisdom to view our lives in this way and the stewardship, right? The ability to steward this one life you've given us with everything that we have. God, we pray and we ask all of that in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.